0: morning, we're focusing on the character of God as the God the Father, who is the covenant-keeping God. I don't know about you, but I know that as best as I can, though I am oftentimes not super disciplined in it, I'm a creature of habit. I know that I actually function a whole lot better when I function according to a routine, when I have a plan, now, as I said though, that requires a whole lot of discipline, a lot of discipline that sometimes I just don't really have. But we are, by our nature, creatures of habit and creatures of discipline and creatures of routine, whether we keep those routines and those habits well or not. But what I've also seen is my routines and my patterns, or really my pattern of failing to keep my routines and my patterns reveals to me weaknesses and problems in my life. Even as a pastor, sometimes when folks come in with a habitual problem, one of the exercises that I will walk them through in counseling is to encourage them to take out a calendar and to keep a journal over a couple of weeks of every single time that they struggle with a particular sin because I know that patterns reveal or routines reveal problems and reveal sources of problems in our lives. The book of Ecclesiastes, there the author tells us and reiterates this, that there's times and there's seasons. We're used to this time of the year when things are dying off and going dormant around us and we're looking forward to the winter months maybe, but you're probably looking even more so towards the next summer and you just can't wait for it to get here. But our life is characterized. Even the world that God created follows patterns and cycles. And the book of Ecclesiastes, the author there says that there is nothing that is new under the sun. And what we find throughout Scripture is that one pattern that characterizes our life is oftentimes our pattern of waywardness, a pattern of rebellion against the Lord and His ways. We've seen that in the prophets. We see that in the history of the Old Testament community of Israel. We see that in our own lives. And as our patterns and as Scripture reveals to us our own tendency towards waywardness and a routine of rebellion, what we need and what we find throughout Scripture, but especially in the book of Malachi, is a reminder that we worship and serve and are welcomed into, called into a relationship with a God who never wavers who never fails. As Malachi declares, as the Lord declares through Malachi, the Lord does not change. And as you and I ebb and flow and waver away from the Lord, He is the covenant-keeping God who calls us into a faithfulness and into a relationship with Him. As we discuss this broader book, I want us to focus um, on our time in Scripture reading at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, as we find a promise there from the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession." And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who never fails, the Lord who never wavers, The lord who does not change lord for a room full of people who wander and stray who rebel who choose to live our lives in our own way who ask as we saw last week is this really worth it what am i am i losing more than i'm getting is it profitable As we'll see this morning in Malachi, I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would settle deeply upon our hearts, that we might know that it is worth it, because you are worth it. You are worthy of all of our worship. You are worthy of all of our affection. You are worthy of all of our honor and our praise and our trust. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us fresh and new, expose our waywardness and unveil Uh, before our eyes, the sin that is in our lives, and set us free from the blindness that it brings, and set us on a path of righteousness for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Malachi is very much a hinge book, if you will. It is at the end of the Old Testament, and as such, it serves in a lot of ways as a summary Of everything that has taken place to this point, as well as a a, kind of like a baton handoff to what we're going to find when we get to the New Testament and the beginning of the Gospels. That doesn't mean, though, that the book of Malachi was written necessarily as an intended to be a summary of all of those things. It was a message declared by a man of God, specifically to the people of God in that day, to confront them in their sin, and to call them deeper into a relationship with Him. Malachi, really the summary of Malachi is a summary of the entire Old Testament and the entire Bible itself, is that the covenant-keeping God is calling us to faithfulness. He's calling us into a deep relationship and a dependence upon Him. You see, what we find in the Old Testament, but especially in the, in the uh, prophets, is a pattern of the people, and that pattern is the same pattern that you and I struggle with. We saw it when we studied the book of Judges a few years ago. We've seen it repeatedly in these uh, books. Somebody even came to me at the beginning of this and said, it seems like the message, at least the pattern of these books, is the same. Every single one is repetitive. The people sin, God calls them to repentance, and they either do or they don't. And they either face God's judgment or they find God's salvation. And every single book has been that exact same message. Because we're creatures of habit. And if there's any habit that defines our life, it's the sinful habit and the sinful pattern that we find throughout Scripture that says God created something amazing and wonderful. We rebelled against God, trying to be gods of our own liking. We ran from Him in our rebellion. And so we find ourselves in this broken mess that God then chooses in His grace and His love and His mercy to come and rescue us from and then begins a work of restoration of creating things even beyond and greater than what they originally were. It's the pattern of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. It follows that broad pattern of, let me go this way so that you can go left to right and I'll go right to left, creation and fall and rescue and consummation or restoration. And we find that that is the pattern, again, of God's people, right? So Malachi, just a bit of history and just a review over the last couple weeks, if you'll remember, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament, the prophets were ministering in the days after the people had returned from exile. Right? David and Solomon brought Israel to a place where they were a world power. Solomon's son was evil to the people. The people rebelled, and the nation of Israel was split in two. There was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was wicked all of the time. There were a few prophets that God raised up, but all of the kings that were there were evil all of the time. The kings in Judah and the people of Judah, they were righteous some of the time. And so God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to expose their sin, call them to repentance with a warning that if you do not return to the covenant, because I love you, I will discipline you. And God did discipline them. He first brought the, um, the Assyrians, and the Assyrians conquered that northern kingdom and took them off into slavery and into exile. Later on, the people of Judah didn't learn the lesson from the Israelites, so God brought the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took all of the people out of the promised land. Which God had said back in the first five books of the Old Testament that if the people broke the covenant and proved to be unfaithful, this is how he would discipline them. And so they spent 70 years out of the place and out of the presence of God in captivity in Babylon. After those 70 years, exiled from the land, they were allowed to come back and rebuild the city. Haggai and Zechariah were encouraging them to prioritize God in their return to the Lord by building the temple and remaining faithful. When we come to Malachi, we don't know exactly how long after Zechariah he is ministering, but we know that it's long enough that the temple is up and built and functioning. And we find that even despite Haggai and Zechariah's message and encouragement to remain faithful, these same people are doing the exact same thing that all of their parents and every other generation had done. They have rebelled against the Lord, dishonored His name, pursued their own way, and unlike Zechariah, who God commissioned to uncover his work, because the people are looking around going, okay, where's God? Is this even really worth it? God's commission for Malachi is to reveal to the people what their sin is blinding them to, which is the wickedness inside them and in their own community. And so, we find that they have fallen victim to the power of their sin. They're blind to its presence, and so the Lord takes them to court. The book of Malachi is one elaborate court scene in which God makes his case against his people. So imagine, if you will, that there we are. We are in the courtroom, and God is the judge that is on the throne, and he is also the plaintiff who is bringing this suit against his people, and the people are the, descendant or the, the defendants on this side. And what you find throughout the book of Malachi is this back and forth between God and the people. As God is building His case against the people of Israel. And His case is essentially this. You have broken the covenant. You have been faithless. And my name is being dragged through the mud. Even though our modern cases, or our modern translations of the book of Malachi only breaks it down into four chapters, there's really six different major sections. Because there are six different times that God makes an accusation against his people, and they attempt to defend themselves, and God only then proves his case. And as you read through the book of the Malachi, you will see that pattern. God says something, the people respond with this indignant answer, and God then Clarifies, So you can see it if you look at Malachi chapter 1, as we see the very first dispute that God brings against his people. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? That's the way that that should be read. They don't see how bad they are. It's that defiant child who you have come and said, hey, did you eat the chocolate cake? What cake? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. And what God says in this very first dispute is that the people doubt God's love. Despite everything that God has done, not only for them, but for the generations and the testimony of their fathers and their grandfathers, this generation doubts God's love. And it's important that God begins this book that ends the Old Testament with his love. Have you ever heard the accusation that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament especially, is just an angry God who wants to destroy people all the time? He's the God who tells them to kill entire civilizations. He's the God who's always angry and brings judgment. And yet right here, as God comes to his people, his very first reminder is, I have loved you. And their response is essentially a spit in his face. How? Prove it. I'm looking around because if you'll remember, when these people came back into Israel, even though the kings had promised them everything that they would need to rebuild the temple, he didn't give them lives of luxury. They still suffered under heavy taxes under the Persians. They were still very vulnerable in the land that they were. It had been uncultivated, and so they are suffering under famine, and they're looking around, and they're going, God, you can't love us because we don't have the things we want. Does that sound familiar? God, if you really want to love me, you have to love me my way. I have my love language, God, and you're responsible to love me that way. We're looking around and we're seeing all of this stuff, but we aren't seeing you bless us or love us in the way that we expect. And God's response is, I have loved you. And the way that I have loved you is by defeating your enemies. I've loved you not by giving you health, wealth, and prosperity and all of this fluff. I've loved you by defeating your enemies. He says, Jacob did I love, Esau have I hated. And he goes on to talk about how Esau is going to try to rebuild itself, but it never will because you are the people that I have set my love upon. God loves his people by defeating their enemies. The question, though, that you and I have to understand is that we live in the New Testament covenant and we are not under the same geopolitical promises of God. God isn't out to necessarily defeat our cultural enemies. He's not out to, to eat, defeat our political enemies. He's not out to, to eat, defeat our military enemies out there somewhere else. What God has proven, how God has proven his love is by defeating our enemies of sin and death. That's our enemies. When Paul gets to the New Testament, he says, your struggle's not against flesh and blood, but who do we make our enemies? Everybody who doesn't think like us, act like us, believe like us, and love the things that we love. And we want God to destroy them. What God says is, in His Son, I have defeated your single greatest enemies. That's how I have loved you. But we live in a world that is vying to make God love us the way that we expect and the way that we want. They've doubted God's love. The second dispute... Is that they have dishonored his name. Chapter six of verse one, you see that same pattern. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm your father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? What are you doing? What are you talking about? We're here, we bring offerings and we bring what we've got to do, and we're functioning at the temple. We're doing all of the right things. We're showing up and we're giving our animal sacrifices and we're giving you all of the things that you call us to in your Bible. But what you find out as God goes on is that they are not bringing God their best. Their worship of God is worthless because they bring not just their second best, they bring their least best. They look at their flock of sheep and they go, Well, you know what? That one's not worth anything because it's got a broken leg anyway, so why don't we just give that to God? We'll keep the best for ourselves. The worst goes to the Lord. Beyond that, the priests who are supposed to be shepherding and teaching the people and who are supposed to be the gatekeepers and the disciples, if you will, of proper worship of the Lord, they're sitting back and they're embracing it all. And they're saying, Oh, that's fine. God's not going to care. God's not worth your best. You're fine. And their worship is worthless. They've refused to bring the Lord their best. And so the question that it comes to you and to me is, what do we bring to the Lord? What do you bring to the Lord when you come here? Is it just you? Why do we worship on the first day of the week? Well, partly because it was the day of the week that the Lord was raised from the dead and we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but also because it's the first fruits of our week. It's the beginning of our week. Do we come into the Lord's house and among the Lord's people with hearts prepared to meet the Lord and worship the Lord? Or is this just part of the routine? Do I just come scraping in and it's the best that I could do to get here? Sometimes that's all that there is. God receives us and welcomes us. But when it's a pattern of I just show up because that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm a pa- I just show up because that's what's expected of me, and there's not been a single moment of preparation. I'm so grateful for the one in this congregation who came to me just a few weeks ago and said to me, you know what? I have learned over the last several months That The days that I show up and I haven't spent any time either Saturday night or Sunday morning before I come to church preparing my heart by praying first for you to preach or or for our musicians or whatever else, I walk away going, eh, that was okay. I didn't get anything out of that. But the days that I spend, even if it's just five minutes on Saturday night or Sunday morning, saying, God, tomorrow is yours. Today is yours. I lift up my pastor. I lift up the people who are going to be leading us in worship. I want to meet with you in a special and anointed way as we're reminded of the gospel. She said that is, makes all the difference. Because she's not bringing to God her second best. She's preparing herself to worship the Lord as the Lord deserves. And God says when you bring worthless worship, you say, "I, you are worthless, Lord. Imagine me walking up to my front door on my anniversary, and I ring the doorbell to surprise my wife. And I've got that bouquet of flowers behind my back, and she opens the door and she says, hey, honey, why did you ring the doorbell? The door's not locked. What's going on? It's our anniversary, and I just want you to know how much I love you, and I pull a bouquet of flowers out, and all that it is is a bunch of dandelions that I picked up in the front yard. That might work for my four-year-old son, my six-year-old son at a different age when they're picking up dandelions in the front yard because they know yellow is mommy's favorite color and it's an expression of his love. But when it's me and we've been married for 13 years and I show up with nothing more than a pack of dandelions for my wife that I picked out of the front yard, what does that communicate to her about my affections for her and the value that I hold for her in my life? If God is truly worthwhile, if God is truly valuable, if God is truly infathomably worthy, then how dare we show up on Sunday mornings with nothing more than a handful of dandelions? What we've scrounged together in the morning on the way here. What do we talk about? What defines our conversations? Are we more willing and driven to talk about politics and the sports game, the ball game the day before or anything else than we are what God has done through his word in our lives this week? Do we come prepared to see one another and serve one another and speak truth, driving one another to the God who is worthy of our worship? Their their worship was worthless. Third dispute is that they violated the covenant. If you have ever heard anything come from the book of Malachi, one of the only two things that you probably ever heard comes out of the end of the middle section of chapter 2 when it talks about God hates divorce. And you've heard this used, but the broader set passage, and I don't have time to dive into everything, I think the ESV, that, was a, that is a very, very difficult verse to translate, first and foremost. The King James is the one that has perpetuated God hates divorce. The ESV, though, based on all of my studies, I believe, is one of, if not the best, translations when it says, For the man who does not love, for the man who hates his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You didn't hear him say God hates divorce. It's very different, and I don't have time. I'll be glad to talk with you about the better way to translate that and what that ultimately means, but you have to understand that whole passage and that whole verse is in a broader section when God is accusing these people of being covenant breakers. And so if you get to where he actually introduces this, In chapter 3, the Lord, you cover the Lord's altars with tears and weepings and groanings because you no longer regards the offerings you accept but with favor from your hand. You say, why does he not? He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. And the paragraph right before that is all about how they've been faithless to God. If you'll remember, Jesus summarizes all of the law in the Old Testament in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God says in the first paragraph in chapter 2, verses 10 and following, You have been faithless to me. You've broken the covenant with me. You have failed to love me. You are covenant breakers vertically. You violated the first commandment. And guess what happens when we get off focus with the first commandment and the vertical command and the vertical relationship? Guess what happens to our horizontal relationships? They go out the window if I don't value my relationship with the Lord and I'm not faithful to my covenant with Him, how in the world will I ever be faithful to the covenant of the people that are around me? And so that what God uses as an illustration of their, of their faithlessness to one another is the fact that the men of Israel are divorcing for no reason whatsoever the women that they married, potentially in exile, the good, faithful daughters of God, They came home and they find the really attractive women, younger women of the land, and they trade in for a newer model. And God says, How dare you? How dare you violate that covenant? How dare you turn your back on those that you had promised to guard and protect and to love and to serve, all so that you can pursue your own passions and pleasures. And he says, your faithlessness to one another is a sign of your faithlessness to me. Violating the first command leads to violating the second command. Violating the second command by necessity means we violate the first. And so God con- condemns them or accuses them and proves that they have violated the covenant. The fourth dispute is that they question God's character. At the end of chapter 2, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? God says every one of you who does evil is every one who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them they say They're questioning God's character. They see evil all around them but they what they don't see what God exposes before them is the fact that if you look down in chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, the who swear, uh, those who swear falsely, those who oppress hired workers in their wages, the, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear my name, says the Lord. You see, what they say is, God, you're blessing all those bad people out there and we're getting the short end of the stick. We're the good ones. We're your children. We should be getting those blessings. And what we find is that the same thing is true that we've seen in other prophets that we've studied. They're real quick and we're real good at seeing what's wrong in everybody else. We're really bad at seeing what's wrong in our own hearts and lives. When someone comes to us with a confrontation or with a comment or with a love in their heart to tell us and expose in our hearts the ways that we are turning away from the covenant or we are falling short, of the character of God and the short of His glory, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as all of them. And if you remember, one of the reasons that people don't want to come to church within a three-mile radius of this building right here, one of the top reasons that people say they aren't involved and don't want to be involved in church is they see you and me as judgmental. Because we're real quick to say what's wrong with them and what's wrong with the world out there. We're really slow to say, okay, how have I failed? We have difficult conversations. It's real quick to start pointing the finger and shifting the blame. But pointing the finger at somebody else is really just a way to elevate me, to tear them down and build myself up and believe the lie that says, you're really not that bad. God says, you, 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 are the ones who swear falsely, who oppress hired workers, who are faithless to the fatherless, who thrust aside the sojourners. You are adulterers, sorcerers. And so we see again the principle that we've seen elsewhere in the Minor Prophets that says, hey, listen, here's the thing. Put yourself, draw a circle around yourself, and work ferociously on the person in the circle. And pray and ask the Lord to transform your heart long before you begin working with somebody else. It's the same principle that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Before you go searching after the speck of dust in your brother or your sister's eye, remove the plank out of your own. See yourself first. The last thing that God brings against them is that they are withholding the tithe. If there's any other part of Malachi that you've heard before, you've probably heard this one again and again and again and again and again. Go to any other Southern Baptist church and the deacons stand up and they give the the Scripture reading and the prayer right before the offering. You're going to hear that one. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And on and on it goes. But before that, what God says is that God says that they have they are are away from God. In verse 7, he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, there's the pattern again, how shall we return? God's response is, will man man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. See, what they have done is they have withheld the very blessings that the Lord has given to, to them and they have kept it for themselves. And God says, that is robbery. And what is robbery except a declaration that says your stuff or what you have to offer is more important than you. So I will take from you what I feel is mine, or in this case, I will keep from you what I will feel is mine because that is far more important and valuable to me than you are. The fact that they are withholding the tithe, the problem with the fact that they are withholding the tithe is not that God wants their money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The problem with the fact that they are withholding their tithe is the declaration that it says, God, my stuff is more important to me than you are. And I don't trust you to provide for me what I need so I'm going to hoard it all to myself. And this life is more important than the eternal life and the everlasting life. So I'm going to build my little kingdom here by holding on to all of the wealth that I can amass for myself. Because I am my own God and I will build my kingdom. That's what it means. And so God challenges them. And it's the only place in Scripture where God dares them to put him to the test. I dare you try and outgive me. Because I have always proven faithful. And they ask, in verse 14 of chapter 3, what's the profit of our keeping God's charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? He asks the same question that Zechariah asked and that we looked at last week. Is this really worth it? What's the profit in all of this? Is it really worth it? Does God really see us? And the answer is yes. Because God isn't just merely concerned. Though the bulk of the book is about God making his case against the people, it's also that God wants to tell them, I see you and judgment is coming. And so as they ask in chapter 2, verse 16, at the end of chapter 2, where is the God of justice? God comes right in with chapter 3, verse 1, and said, Behold, I'm coming. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you're seeking is going to suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? God is coming, and he is coming in judgment, and that judgment is going to start not with the people out there, but with the people in here. God starts with his house. He won't skip over the church house to fix the White House, is what some have said. We really want to see change where we are. The change starts here. The change starts here. The change starts with what we do when we leave here in our lives. And so God says, I am coming, He is coming, and He is coming to cleanse His people of all of their impurities. He proves, I am not blind to your faithlessness. He says that He sees them. He hears all of the things that they are saying. He hears and knows the response that they have in their hearts to his accusations. God knows them inside and out. But just as he's not blind to their faithlessness, nor is he blind to their faithfulness, they ask, what's the profit in all of this? Does God really care? And that's what we find in the verses that we read together earlier. That despite all of the faithlessness around them, there is a faithful remnant who come together, who honor and love the Lord. They pay attention and they fear the Lord. And the Lord hears them. The Lord pays attention to them. The Lord remembers them. The Lord writes their name down in verse 17. In his book, that they might be made up of his, be, they might become his treasured possession. God says, "I see you, both the wicked and the righteous. I see the one who serves, verse eighteen, and the one who doesn't. And a day is coming when there will be a distinction between the two. And so Malachi." wraps up the old testament with the reminder of what other prophets have talked about the coming day of the lord the day is coming chapter 4 verse, verse 1 burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble there is a day that is coming and as that sun rises that sun will have two simultaneous but different effects That sun rising as it comes on that day of the Lord's judgment is going to mean destruction and damnation for the wicked. And it's going to mean salvation and hope for the righteous. For those who fear the Lord, who love the Lord, who pursue the Lord, who hear his call to repentance and respond. Imagine it like this. Maybe you're watching one of those horror movies, right? And maybe it's uh, one of those like, zombie apocalypse or vi- vampire apocalypse movies, right? And imagine that night that it's prolonged and it's dark and there's a battle scene that's going on and everybody, that it, all the humans are doing everything that they possibly can just to make it through the night. And finally, at the, just as all hope seems lost in the darkest, and the day is at darkest right before the dawn, that sun comes up. And when those rays of sunshine hit all those vampires, they turned to dust. And in an instant, in a moment, the battle's done. Not because of anything that those humans did for themselves, but simply because the sun came up and they survived. And that sun coming up, what meant destruction for their enemies, all those vampires who get turned to dust, means their salvation. And what are they going to do? They're going to celebrate and dance on the ashes of their enemies and bask in the warmth of the light of day. God promises that that day that comes in its final iteration will be a day that never has a sunset, a day that never ends. And they will be those who go about leaping like calves from the stall. They tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of their feet. God promises that his day is coming. And it's a day that is going to make all things right. And God calls his people, God calls you and me, to repent. You see, the hope of the book of Malachi, as he quotes Zechariah in chapter 3, verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The hope is that there's still time. There's still time, because if you get to the end of the book, God says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. God says this day is coming, and this day is going to mean destruction and damnation for some, and it's going to mean salvation for others. And before that day comes, I will be faithful to give you a heads up. I will send a messenger who will prepare the way of the Messiah. I will send the one who will give you a warning. And this is the place where we see Malachi, like that one runner on a relay team in a relay race on track and field, has the baton, and he's going to hand that baton off. And if I could skip over the first two books of the New Testament and get to Luke, we find Luke being right there with his hand out to receive the baton because all of Luke chapter 1 is about the birth of that one who would prepare the way of the Lord, who is John the Baptist. Jesus himself says that John the Baptist is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, the one who came proclaiming in the wilderness and preparing the way of the Lord. And that Lord and that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who came and proved himself and proved God to be the one who is always faithful to keep his covenant, especially and even when we are faithless. God is the covenant-keeping God. Regardless of how many times we fail regardless of how many times we wander astray, God never changes. Praise God. He never changes. Because my life ebbs and flows, and my affections for the Lord ebb and flow, and my life of obedience ebbs and flows, and God alone is constant. And God is constantly calling me back calling me in repentance, calling me to faithfulness. Why? Because he's been faithful. And he's proven himself faithful because he did send Elijah the prophet, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way of the Lord. And that Lord was Jesus Christ, who was as the book of Malachi condemns the priests for their failure to properly lead the people. Jesus himself says, I am the greater priest. I am the shepherd. The book of Hebrews tells us that he is the priest who has once for all finished everything. Who allows us, because of his work on the cross, to walk boldly into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God with our wants and our needs. As we depend upon him. He is the better priest. He's the greater leader. He's the greater shepherd for His people. He is the one, chapter 3, who comes as the refiner, who purifies His people. More pure than silver. More pure than gold. And He does it by His own blood. Because He's the one who endured the wrath of God. As He hung on the cross, being declared guilty, though he was guiltless, and who nevertheless drank the cup of God's wrath for sin, for your sin and for my sin, that we might be set free, defeating sin. Three days later, according to God's plan, he was raised from the dead and defeating death. How does God love you? By dying for you. How does God love you? By defeating death and promising everlasting life in Christ. And his call to you and to me today is believe that and trust in Christ and come to the God who calls you to faithfulness because he is the covenant-keeping God. And His covenant-keeping nature fulfills all of His promises, meets all of our needs in Christ. So my question is, would you come to Jesus today? Whether it's for the very first time, trusting in Him for salvation and salvation alone, And trusting Him alone for salvation. Or maybe you need to come again, not because you have lost your salvation. We don't believe that the Bible teaches that. But because God's call is always the same. Come to me. And you will find me faithful. Come to me. And you will find me present. Come to me and you will find and meet my love. Come to me and you will find and meet my grace. Would you come to the Lord today?